You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com. And I kid you not, I raised my rangefinder to range the trees. I have no idea if he's really in there. I just think he is. I range the trees, and as luck would have it, he stands up inside my rangefinder as my rangefinder's to my face. Hey guys, thanks for tuning back in with us. I know it's been a minute since we've published a podcast, and I just want to let you guys know that because of a lot of your feedback and emails, calls, and just conversations, we're kicking this thing back up, and we will be consistently producing at least one podcast a month. So don't miss them. You can subscribe on Podbean, Stitcher, or iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Altitude underscore Outdoors, on Facebook, or on YouTube to catch a lot of our content. We'll put links on those, on our uh, social media pages for new articles, editorials, podcasts, gear reviews, uh, videos. While I have you, I just want to take one more second of your time uh, and just let you know that we're adding new products to our online store almost every day. We just got back from SHOT Show and had some great conversations over there with some dealers where we'll be bringing some new dealerships in, some new product offerings to AltitudeOutdoors.com that we're excited to share with you guys. So feel free to jump on there. It means a lot when we get orders, whether it's just a hat or anything up to a spotting scope. Uh, we really appreciate you guys following along and supporting us there. Speaking of products that I love, I just want to mention one other one. It's not something that we carry in our shop, but it's something that I've used personally for the last four years, and that's the backpacks from Exo Mountain Gear. You can head over to exomountaingear.com and check out all the offerings they have there. I currently use the 5500 on the K2 frame which has been a really, really versatile option for me for everything from scouting trips, day hunts, to coming out with a animal and camp on my back, which I've had to do a few times. So it's really been a difference maker in the way that I hunt and allowed me to be more mobile and more versatile as I get back into the mountains. Anyway, guys, this podcast, we're going to jump into it now. We have two very driven and successful mountain hunters from Wyoming, Braxton Hamilton and Story Ratcliffe. We'll dive in on their tactical approach to hunting, uh, how they met each other, and a whole bunch of other good stuff here. So thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this one, and uh, feel free to follow along with everything that we have here at AltitudeOutdoors.com. Well, everyone, welcome back to Hunt the High Country Podcast, or should I say welcome us back, Brad. It's been a while. We've kind of had a lot of stuff going on and haven't been able to get to the podcast, but we're excited to talk to some great friends tonight. We've been looking forward to this one for a while. We've got Brax Hamilton and Story Ratcliffe with us tonight. Um, gentlemen, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourselves? Brax, let's start with you, buddy. Sure. Hey, thanks for having us, man. We're happy to be here. Braxton Hamilton, I'm 28, just love hunting deer, it's pretty much what consumes my mind and my time, so yeah, kind of what uh, what we're here for, right? That's right. <laughs> Those of you that have followed the podcast, you know that Brad and I are uh, diehard high country mule deer hunters, that's usually what we bring on is guys that we can learn from, and these two have it figured out, so we're excited to learn from them. I don't know if we got it figured out, but we're <laughs> learning every day, right? Yeah, well, we're all learning. <laughs> oh, Story, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, buddy? Um, Story Ratcliffe, uh, 25, born and raised in Wyoming, and started hunting young, like all the rest of us, and 
this great state with amazing opportunities and left for a little bit for college and some athletics and while I was away that's when my love and desire to chase high country mule deer bucks really took off and just hasn't really ended and I don't hope I hope it never does end uh gets a little bit more as Braxton would say it gets a little more romantic it seems like every summer just fall in love with mule deer and hunting mule deer and the mountains and everything so it's kind of where it all started and just riding the train trying to see where it leads me so one thing i didn't know about you story is you have a little bit of a background in ecology and wildlife management correct uh yeah that's correct so uh i got my bachelor's degree in natural resources with uh and then i have a double minor uh one in forest forest ecology and then the others in wildlife management i received those back east in at a small private school called berea college sports took me out there but uh and then ever since then ever since i was 18 every summer coming back i would do a six month seasonal position with the blm here in rock springs and that eventually led me into my career where i am today and today i'm a natural resource specialist on the fluid side of bureau land management which is just another way of saying i, I work with the oil and gas industry for the blm uh, inspections, things of that nature, but I do have a couple years combined of seasonal work with wildlife ecology, I guess you could say. Right on. I know we touched on a little bit, but why don't you guys go through, uh, Brax, Brax, let's start with you. Um, kind of your progression and evolution for me when you guys first started hunting big deer. So I guess I'll just start at the beginning. Growing up, you know, my dad was a big time elk hunter and we just kind of roamed the mountains chasing elk and we always ran into big deer, but uh, we just never really were able to get it done, you know. We were kind of focused on the elk, so um, we never really got to scout or do the things that we should be doing to be successful and hunt big high country bucks. So um, it was just always something that kind of eluded us, but it wasn't like we were really chasing after them anyways. So, I mean, chasing elk's fun, don't get me wrong, but I always kind of just had that huge desire to like okay what are these big bucks about right you know you run into them but where the heck are they every day you know you see them once a year and then you're like don't know nothing about them so that's kind of where I started getting the interest in it and then uh as I got older you know just we'd hunt elk and you'd go kill a buck and that'd be sweet you know you'd get your elk done and fill your deer tag if you had time and finally I said you know what I'm kind of sick of just killing average bucks I know there's big bucks out there I want to figure it out there was one year in college that I ended up killing a deer, but besides that year, I went nine years without uh, filling a tag just because I told myself, you know, I'm not not going to kill a little deer anymore. I'm going to figure it out, and I'm, I'm going to get a big deer that I'm proud of. And Nine years later, I got my first 200-inch deer, and just super blessed with that, and just been figuring it out along the way, man. But uh, definitely my heart's in the high country. You know, I remember growing up and always talking about, Let's go hunt in the rocks, you know, that's what we used to call it, hunting in the rocks. To me, that just means, you know, being above Timberline and just being in love with it, you know, not just not just the deer hunt, but just where it is. It's just, it's amazing country. It just, it'll grab you. So anyways, that's kind of, I guess, what led me up to the path that I'm on now. And yeah, you know, it's funny, like, we've talked about this a hundred times. We love mule deer no matter where they live, but uh, there's nowhere I'd rather chase them than up there, man. Any high country, you got amazing views. And the you know the deer act different too, so they're just they just seem wiser. I don't know if there's any truth behind that or not, but it's pretty awesome waking up every morning with views like that and knowing that there's big deer running around. Well, I think it has to do with the country they're in. Like a lot of lower stuff just doesn't have that op- the openness that the high country does, you know. So it's kind of fun to yeah. see the bucks navigate that stuff, and like a juniper patch to jump into, or like yeah. badlands country or desert where you have 
the mix of cover almost everywhere. Their whole life is a is just a big lesson for them. You know, it's not like they just get to live in a junior juniper patch from January to December. You know, they're they're migrating, they're moving around, they're getting pressured by hunters. They drop down when the snow comes, they get pressured there. They have way more experience than a deer out in the sagebrush does. Oh yeah. So they're kind of a whole different animal, but, yeah, but that's why we love them. Uh, story. What about you, my friend? Uh, probably when I was. I was driving, so I was 16, and I went on a kind of a DIY-style hunt with a buddy of mine named Cody, and he invited me up to his family's hunting camp up north, and we went, and that's when I actually, so I was, originally I started out in the sagebrush outside of uh, Rock Springs here out in the dunes, and I thought it was a great hunt, but once I once I got that high country bug and I got to experience the quality of the hunt up north, it's just, it's forever encompassed my mind every day just wondering what's around the next corner the next tree or the next ridge and then back to where i was 16 we went out there and i killed my first my first four point deer and it was probably like a one like a 120 class buck you know something but i was extremely proud and it was the biggest deer i've ever killed and I, I was on top of the world that day, and ever since that day, I've just been wanting to do it again and again and again, and so far, these last few years, I have been progressing better and better and killing larger and less more mature deer, and it's just been, it's been a blast, but while I was away in college, uh, I couldn't hunt because of athletic responsibilities in the fall. I was 1,800 miles away from home, and so the only thing I could do is watch YouTube and read magazines and just anything I could do to feel that itch of being there when I wasn't. And my best buddy at the time, Cody, he was just every fall, it, it never failed. He was just sending me pictures of the deer his dad got or the deer he got. And it just, uh, it just killed me being away from it and reading magazines. And then it was actually during those, those years away is when Braxton and I started actually communicating. It was kind of just small talk, yes, and just, How'd, how'd it go, man? Or congrats on your stuff and things like that. And he played soccer and I played soccer. And so he'd ask me things about how college was going. And it was during that time away that I just was like, I'm not going to stop until I kill a 180 inch deer. And uh, it's been a, quite the trip. Uh, I've learned a lot. I did a couple of years of just solo, solo hunting DIY. And that was rough, but I learned a lot about deer and a lot about myself more importantly. And, I think the biggest thing I learned was uh, I was like, man, that's a big deer, and I'm like, that's that has to be that has to be that mark, and then it ended up being a 165 inch deer. And then <laughs> the next the next year, I was like, oh man, that's a great buck. Like I'm taking it, boom, and it was a 170 <laughs> inch deer. And so it's just like I think that was the biggest thing. And coming into this year, I knew going into this season, I knew what a 180 inch deer was, and I held out and I hunted nothing less than that and you say we'll still be dealing that the next goal is already set and i'm not going to stop till i reach that one so it's just been years away and following dudes like braxton and other guys uh, another good buddy of mine you guys actually had him on the show is clay i talk, i've known clay for a while and talked to him a lot to reach that level is my ultimate goal and the only way to do it is to surround yourself with guys like-minded and that work hard and that's what i did and uh, still pursuing it so right on man that's sweet yeah clay's a he's a wealth of knowledge for hunting deer in this country that's for sure what's interesting about that and like i mean his story is kind of similar to your story because you know he he hunted solo for years and years and years and i think a lot of us 
do that. I mean, I, I hunt solo a lot just because my schedule's crazy and I can't hook up with other people to hunt with sometimes. And so you just got to do what you got to do. But it's kind of interesting coming from a solo hunt to where you can kind of link up with people that hunt like you and have the same mindset. Do you guys want to jump into that a little bit? Yeah. I know you guys are really big on hunting with the buddies and, and working off of each other, sort of that team mentality. Yeah. Con- contrast that yeah. with like solo hunting and, and uh, tell us sort of why you prefer that over going out on your own and having a smaller footprint. So story can probably cast a little bit more light on a solo hunt. Um, I've kind of always tried to find guys that, that can uh, make myself better. And man, a lot of solo hunting is just the, the mental aspect. I mean, if you, if you know how to hunt deer, you're going to be able to hunt deer with a buddy or by yourself either way the same. It's just that if you don't have the right mental attitude to do it when you're by yourself, you're going to fail every time. So I, I always do better with another guy with me. So Story could probably <laughs> cast a lot of light on being by himself. He's done that a little bit more than I have. I think I think Braxton hit it on the head. It's, it's more of a mentality thing than anything. And I'm sure you, Brad, can contest to that as well. It's getting over those, those voices in your head that are always telling you something's there or something's behind the bush or... Something's going to come in on you at the, while you're sleeping, you know, <laughs> things like that. Those, like, little fears that your brain makes up, just, they suck. And you experience them every day. Every day you're out there by yourself, you, you experience some type of fear, and it's just battling that. And if you, you have the mental toughness and the ability to get through those little mental walls, then you're unstoppable. I think that was one thing that really drove me further is I knew I was mentally tough enough to do it, and so I would do it. And then I kind of got addicted to it there for a little while, where it was like, how hard could I go? How far could I go? How long can I stay? And so that's what I, I think that's just what really got, I got really addicted to it. And then after a couple of years of doing it, and I mean, every weekend from July to September, you're by yourself. And I think you found out that you weren't as successful by yourself. That, that was a part of why you, <laughs> you stopped doing that. Yeah. Oh, God. I was always successful, but... No, I've found greater. I've, I have found greater success being able to be with somebody, uh, especially somebody that's more like-minded, has the same, if not more, work ethic than you. And I think it just really helps because you can, when you're down, they're. It seems like when you're down, they tend to be up, and so it kind of brings you up. And when they're down, you tend to be up, and therefore carry them with you. And so it's just bouncing off of each other. It's a huge, huge positive. But being by yourself, if you haven't done it, I would. I would definitely want you to try it. Like you, it's something that everybody should try. It's definitely not for everybody, but the amount of information and wealth that you can learn about yourself, it's priceless being by yourself. It's just, you can't really, I, don't, I don't really know how to describe it. I don't yeah. really know how to talk about it, but it's just something else for sure. And it's worth trying. You know what? I, I prefer hunting with somebody else. You know, there's a lot of hunters out there that prefer hunting solo. I actually hunt harder with a with a buddy you know like you're saying a like-minded buddy just because you know they push you you push them even bouncing ideas off of each other and i mean it gives me a whole new perspective to you know even with stocks mm-hmm. or you know trying to figure out what, what the animal's doing and i don't know for me i just process better having someone to talk to i mean it always turns into you know you're joshing each other and you know it just turns into the fun and you know, one thing, I've had great experiences alone, but I come home and, you know, other than the camera and the pictures and some of the video, you know, I really enjoy, you know, I mean, that's what Brad and I talk about. We talk about the hunts that we did together and, 
you know, that just, just having those experiences and someone that was there, you know, that you could talk about. I think that that's what makes it so much more meaningful to me. I think the biggest thing for me is like, you know, you both bring in all of your experiences together and when you're there together, you just get to be able to talk to each other and be like, Hey man, so what do you think about doing this? And, and you don't want to let your buddy down, but when you're by yourself, you let those doubts kind of creep in. You're like, ah, you know, like nobody will know if I don't walk over to that next ridge. Like just, I'll be the only one that knows. So when you're with your buddy, you can always be like, you know, like if it even comes up in conversation, you know, we should walk over that ridge. Well, now you said it, somebody else heard it. So now you really have to make a decision. Like, is that what's going to be best for our next move right now? And you're able to like have a conversation about it and, and truly process what you can do that's going to make the situation best for that moment. And like I said, you're not going to want to let your buddy down, so you're going to go do it. And you're going to crush it. Yeah, it might hurt, but you're not going to show your buddy that because, you know, he's there to make you accountable. Right. So The amount of respect, too. Like, when you're up there and you're just crushing it and your lungs are on fire, your legs are jello, then there's a dude right next to you doing it, too. It's just uh, it's, it's exceptionally encouraging to know you're not doing it by yourself. Yeah, it's, it's what makes it fun. I was listening to a podcast, uh, a Kobe Bryant podcast, and I'm not like a huge Kobe fan or anything, but he was talking about those championship teams that he played on, right? And how him and his buddies or his teammates on those teams, they still keep in touch, like text each other. They're just, they take the time out of their lives to get together. And I think that goes back to just doing hard things with somebody, you know, and just conquering something together. I think it builds a huge bond when you kind of rely on each other and all that. I mean, I, I think you touched on this story, like, I think the mental side of hunting and probably especially high country mule deer hunting is harder than the physical side, even though you're scaling cliffs and nasty crap, you know. When you're by yourself, you've got to generate all that optimism and all that drive on your own. I agree with you guys on everything. I like hunting solo sometimes. I mean, it's like you said, you learn a ton about yourself and kind of who you are and what what makes you drive and i i hunt way different by myself too i i wander a lot more when i hunt by myself um forward and i just kind of move which i kill things by myself a lot too but i think there's pros and cons to both to both of them well yeah and i mean let's be honest when you're up there fatigued or whatever hate to bring in the high altitude aspect into it but you know you're tired you're not always making the best decisions when you're by yourself when you're able to have a buddy there with you, it's like, hey, man, should we wander around or should we sit here? Well, of course we should sit here. This buck was here last night. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have no reason to believe that he's over where we're going to go wander. Yep. Whereas, you know, you're by yourself. You start having doubts of, like, where that buck went. Well, maybe I should walk over here and look for him. But before you know it, the sun's setting and the buck was probably there the whole time. For me, I think that's the biggest thing is to always bounce ideas off of a solid hunting partner. Finding that solid hunting partner is basically the whole battle really i mean once you got him it's kind of easy from there but you got to have somebody you can trust i mean you're in the high country the back country it's it's not necessarily a safe place to be so you gotta have somebody you can trust with your life and somebody that's that's always gonna hold you up did you guys meet just interacting on instagram or did you guys grow up together actually uh i went to rock springs for college i was playing soccer and story you were sophomore in high school yeah yeah. So Story was playing soccer at the high school, and uh, we'd go down there and play with them. We'd help them with their practices, things like that. And Story and I just kept bashing our heads together, you know. We'd drill against each other, and we'd, we'd just uh, play matches against each other, just kind of scrimmaging and stuff. And 
he was always the guy that was challenging me and I was challenging him and we kind of built the friendship that way and then uh like story said earlier he went off to college kept in touch through Instagram and I guess we kind of respected what each other were doing and we kind of became closer friends after that right on so when did you get when did you guys first hunt together just a couple of years ago I guess huh actually I think the first time Braxton hit me up I was I was I just got back home I think I had just gotten back from graduating college He's like, hey man, I'm gonna go shed hunting. I'm going solo. Like, you should come. And I think I was, I think oh, I was yeah. tired. Honestly, I think it was laziness, and I was just tired. I just drove twenty some hours and things like that. And I, I made these excuses up, and I was like, no, nah, man, I can't go. Uh, but let's let's definitely hit something this summer. Like, let's go pound some sagebrush and find some sheds. Like, whatever. And then the next day, he sent me a picture, and it's this 350 inch set of horns. He picked up and he's just like, you should have, you should have came. And I was just like, son of a gun. And so after that, I was like, all right, no matter what, I, I gotta make this work. And then I think that summer we went on a couple of shed hunting trips together. And then ever since then, we've just been planning stuff year after year. And then it eventually led into the fall hunts, and it's just been a blast. <laughs> yeah, I think our first deer hunt was actually just last year really our legit time on the mountain together i think was only just last year yeah, uh, yeah. story was pretty dedicated in just hunting solo which is something you got to really respect because i mean i remember it as he knew that he wasn't reaching his goals that he wanted but he wasn't giving up on him like you know i'd invite him like hey let's do it he's like no nah, man this is this is what i'm gonna do so he did it and then kind of once he got to reevaluate his goals and reset them we started hunting together it's been great really kind of figured it out i think still learning but <laughs> yeah so you guys touched on it a little bit you brought up the, the idea of having a, a hunting partner that you can trust what are, what are the qualities do you look for in a hunting buddy man the the number one thing the number one quality you want in a hunting partner in my opinion is somebody that's going to be just as jacked and excited for you to kill a deer as you are to kill your own deer that's why most people hunt solo, right? Is because they don't want to have to deal with like, okay, well, who gets to shoot first? And if we do end up finding a 200-inch buck, you know, whose is it? And how do we go about that? And so, like, you know, most people just don't want to have to deal with that. So, you know, you need a buddy that's just going to, you know, hey, man, go kill that deer. freaking. And then when you get it done, he's right there, tears in his eyes, just excited. Because, you know, we, I've hunted with guys that it's kind of all about them. And that's not going to make it fun. That's going to be a terrible trip. And if it's all about them, you're not having fun. You're kind of sitting there like, well, what the heck, man? And then at the end of the trip, you're really not excited for them to kill anything either. So, so in my opinion, that's the biggest thing is you got to have somebody that just, they're there for the hunt. They're not there for them. They're there for the hunt, whether it's them or you. The other thing is, man, like not everybody's going to have a best friend that wants, wants to deer hunt by their side. You know, they're going to, if you want to hunt with a partner, which I strongly suggest, you might have to go find somebody that's not your best friend, and you're going to have to make it work. But, I mean, before you go out in the field, there's definitely a few things that you need to you need to set some ground rules and really talk about, and that's okay, you know? Like, it's okay before you leave the trailhead, you know, say, hey, guys, you know, if we do find a deer, who's who's got it? Let's lay those ground rules down now so that we're not in a fight in the backcountry or we're not stepping on each other's toes, and, you know, let's not have to worry about that kind of crap when we're actually trying to stalk a deer let's stalk the deer so like i said i mean it's great to have your best friend as your hunting partner but not everybody's going to be able to get to do that when you do go about searching for a partner you know just make sure that you guys get actually voice what's going to be happening yeah i think a lot of it's trial and error for sure 
I mean, I'm sure we all have gone through, have all tried it with different hunting partners and it was good times, but not the, the greatest time or there's something that was a little bit off. And so I think a lot of that really helped me personally. I've Since college, I've gone through a couple of hunting partners and I'm still friends with all of them. We're all great friends, but it just like you're saying, it's a matter of finding that one that's it's compatible, that fit. I think in my trial and error seasons, it was partially my fault where it's also stuck in my solo minded like just go 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 mindset that it didn't really fit for them and then there's that little bit of that little offset between us and it just didn't work whereas now rex and i we hit it off because our drive's there and our mindset's there but i think trial and error had a huge role in my progression to where i'm at today yeah and that's a good point story like uh, on this podcast, we're talking about targeting big bucks, big mature deer. So if you're going to find a hunting partner and that's your goal, that better be your hunting partner's goal too. If it's not, you're not going to be very successful. You might as well be hunt solo because if your other buddy just wants to sit at camp and eat the six-pack of donuts that he brought in, then, then you might as well sit at camp with him, you know, or, or be a solo hunter because, you know, if that's not your goal and you just want to hang out with a friend and have fun, then go do it by all means. But you know, if we're specifically going to talk about hunting big bucks, make sure your buddy, your hunt partner has the exact same goals as you. Talk about big bucks, and that's really what we wanted to pick your guys' brains about. It's kind of your process of, of not only, you know, finding and scouting big bucks, but just the preparation even before season. Because I know that you guys are probably training right now for in July, August, as well as, you know, archery and everything else. So. Why don't we jump into the even the preseason preparation and then we'll go from there. So you just said that we're we're already scouting and jumping into our season and yeah you're right. Story don't we have all of our weekends already planned out where we're going and when and how long we're gonna be there? We already have pins dropped on Google Earth for next or I guess it'd be from, uh, two years from now. But we're sending each other screenshots of Google Earth like almost every day, just like what about this spot? What about this spot? But it definitely starts now with e-scouting for sure but like Braxton was saying we're already planned out for this this coming season fall of 2019 but on the physical side of it I don't think it ever ends really we, we train all year long so with your training what are you specifically doing I'm just curious uh Braxton and I are completely different <laughs> in this aspect <laughs> I was waiting for this question <laughs> go, go ahead man uh so I'm, I'm trying to let be me, different let me, this year. Let me preface uh, this by saying that Story is my pack mule. So this that'll explain a lot about what he's about to tell you. <laughs> so sometimes we joke, I'm, I'm the best goat we have. Um, <laughs> but no, we're completely different. Braxton, he tends to stay lean and in good cardio shape year-round, and that's what I'm actually trying to do this year. Uh, but in the years prior to this, I usually lift – five to six days a week and lifting heavy weights and trying to put on as much muscle as I can. And the reason, the reasoning I used to do that, and I'm trying to not, I'm trying to get away from that now. It's just from what I've learned. But in the years past, my mindset was every fall I lose, I drop 20 to 30 pounds in a matter of two months. And it's mainly muscle. So in my, in my head, I was theorizing, well, if I'm losing that much, if I put as much on as I possibly can going into the season, going into the summer scouting, that's less work I have to do post-season in terms of getting back to where I want to be. I think it was uh, 2017, I think I lost 32 pounds. And that was from that was from August 1st to October 31st. Insane amount of weight, but 
this year I'm trying to be more like Braxton. I'm trying to just stay lean year round and I'm already like way behind schedule. Uh, but <laughs> you and me both. my lifting now is more cardio based than it was in the years past. And I'm hoping for that to give me a better cardio level all the way through this season. Whereas in prior seasons, I start out really slow and I finish really strong. I want to start this season out really strong and finish even stronger. So, I mean, from the outside looking in, um, Story's just a freaking ox, man. He's He's got muscles popping off his eyelids. And, you know, that's that's great and everything. When it, it's perfect for me when we go to kill something. It's like, hey, man, I'm pretty tired. You want to put this on your pack? And he's like, sure. <laughs> I'll start tying rocks to his pack at the end of the trip, you know. But I think everyone's body's different. So you got to kind of understand your body, first of all. But what I have seen with Story is, like, um, we went shed hunting this year in May. And I'm just ready to go, go, go still. By the time, you know, we started at midnight. Sun's coming up. I'm like, all right, cool, man. We can finally see that mountain that we need to go to. And the story's like, no. Like, <laughs> I'm done. Just for high country hunting, your body needs to be ready to go all day long. It's not necessarily about how strong you are or how much you can carry or all that, but... You don't want to have to worry about your body when you're up there. You want, you want to be ready to continue to go because you never know where that buck's going to be. You might have been in one basin one day, and overnight a bear cruised through or a cougar or something. You've got to go if you want to get on him. So I just think you need to be light, ready to run. Our, our other hunting partner, Josh, is a perfect example of um, staying physical all year. Um, he's in the gym every day. He runs, I think he runs a mile at the start of his workout, does his lifts, and all of his lifts are um, lots of reps, low weight. Um, he does a lot with, like, um, sandbags and things like that. And then he runs a mile when he's done. And he's just, he's an amazing guy. I can't keep up with him while he's, he's hiking. He's an animal. He's quite the specimen. I think with all that being said, like, it's important to be, have good physical condition, but it's not absolutely crucial to kill a big deer. The other things we're about to talk about probably more important, but whatever you do, don't let the fitness side be the thing that kills you in the backcountry. So. so you guys touched on a lot yeah. of things that I wanted to go over. Um, I totally agree. You know, I'm a, I'm a therapist by profession, and uh, one thing that, that I try to do is, you know, the low weight, um, high rep dynamic type movements very functional based movements because that's what that's what we're doing in the mountains no matter how hard you try there's no you can't simulate the mountain in the gym so even when it gets time you know throw throw some weight on your back and just go hit the mountain shed hunt whatever I don't think there's a there's a better thing you can do than just that way when Brad and I start training if he's with me I always push myself a little bit harder you know and over time if you I mean if you start now um, that's a big investment by the time July comes and you know that even helps us to be uh, more mentally strong as well because I even have have thought the same things do I really want to go over that ridge or whatever and then it's just like you know what I've been I've been working at this since you know all year um, how many miles have I done to prepare for this of course I'm going so it's just another thing exactly to, just another thing to push myself Yet you have your buddy right behind you. You don't want to seem like a wuss, so you just keep trucking, and you you know you can go a lot further than you think you can. So what about uh, shooting uh, your bows and your rifles? How are you guys preparing with that? I just don't shoot the rifle because if I don't kill it with my bare hands or a bow, then I just shouldn't be up there, right? <laughs> right. 
I, I try to shoot my bow every day. I start my rifle in June, but try to shoot my bow as much as I can, which I'm slacking on right now. So. What about you guys? You guys probably get to shoot all the time, huh? No, we do. We do a lot the same. You know, we try to run leagues and stuff in the in the winter as much as you can. Um, one thing with the yeah. rifles that I have started doing is I do carry a long range gun, but you know, mine is all functional based training. I mean, we make sure it's sighted in and it's doing what it's supposed to. But I go find a rock pile somewhere and you know try to shoot rocks in real settings, and you know it's really helped versus you know having your rest and everything just perfect but i try to be out at least you know once every couple weeks to you know get that motor memory and everything and it, it's made a huge difference for me i'll even set a timer for myself and i've got to get this shot off in 30 seconds and just you know just try to practice just like it really is and i'll even run you know go run a half mile or a quarter mile and then come back and try to take that shot just to get your your heart rate elevated and stuff so no, that's that's a way good tip, man. I like it. That is. Run a couple laps and shoot your gun. We had a situation like that this year. We were chasing a giant bull um, in October, and uh, we had to run at 10,000 feet over a mile before Story was able to make the shot. And I don't know that the shot was because he was breathing hard as much as it was me giving him the wrong range, but <laughs> let's just say it didn't work out very well. Um, one of the best trips I ever did, I took my bro my little brother over to um, to Idaho, and we shot rock chucks, like to have that communication. Um, so he knows exactly what range to give you. He knows what ballistic system or whatever if you're shooting long range. Uh, but, you know, that's invaluable. You know, it's good to have somebody that you've practiced with actually go with you. You know, that, that helps to solidify that, yeah, you know, we've made, how many shots have we made together? I think another thing too is like kind of knowing your partner's setup. Whereas Braxton, Braxton knew he knows my setup, he knows my gun, uh, he knows my reticles and my holdovers and things like that. And that was one thing going in when we took off running for that bull. I like there wasn't a doubt in my mind that when he gave me a, a range that I was gonna I was gonna get a shot off. Like it, I just knew it was gonna happen because I knew that he wouldn't tell me something or misinterpret something in communication when he's relaying it back to me and with that bull it was just a kind of a one of those those things that happens i think the range he was when he was ranging he was picking tops of trees instead of the actual bull and so when you're shooting out there at four to five hundred yards 40 yards off on your range is a huge amount so it just didn't work out no i think it definitely definitely would help knowing each other's setups i mean we even we made a trip out to the winter range just looking at deer and I didn't bring a, a, a coyote gun with me, and he did. And the first thing I think we were, yeah, we were still on pavement, just driving. And I was just like, all right, well, where, where did the what's the, what's the setup like? He's like, this reticle's this, 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 this. And then it wasn't 15, 20 minutes later. I had to use it and pop the dog real quick. Just knowing each other's setups, even if it's just brief, that's better than mm -hmm. nothing. So. The the day before rifle deer this year, we sat at camp with Story's gun and talked about different body postures and we sat there with his bipod down and dry fired on a rock for like an hour and a half it's those little things that that's you know you don't want that to be the thing that ruins your hunt our hunting buddy josh he always tells me don't make a bad shot you spend all year watching a deer you finally get an opportunity and you shoot him in the guts i mean how would that feel 
I mean, we've all heard about drama. You guys had actually had a podcast about it. I mean, that cannot be a good feeling. So when the time comes, you got to be completely confident that that deer's going to die or don't pull the trigger. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge thing. I mean, for me, like, I, I mean, I whiffed on some big deer as a teenager just because of that, you know. Like, I obsess about it and read and think, well, if I do this and this and this, but then when it came down to the shot, there's a couple I can think of I, that I wish I could have back. <laughs> and the only yeah. the only way I've found to remediate that is just practice. You can't practice on a bench, though. You've got to make it as real as as it is you know even you guys were talking about driving down the road we've done that you know where you're where your spotter you're driving down the road or, or something and they say you know you know shoot that rock and you have you know 30 seconds or a minute to get it done putting that much pressure on you and practicing you know that's kind of what you feel you know with a with a deer or even saying you know rather than going out and shooting 20 times there's times i've taken my rifle out um, even on a trail run or something and I, I take one shell with me and I only shoot one shell and if I don't hit what I'm going I have to think about it for a week before I get an opportunity again and that teaches you in a hurry to you know to calm down to relax and make it count when you have it. Yeah that's a cool idea man. Uh, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm definitely gonna start doing stuff like that. Oh, Timer. Yeah. I have a little story about screwing up a shot i guess <laughs> i had a 200 inch deer that me and josh watched the year josh passed on him the year before and he blew up i think he went 205 or 204 then we watched him the whole year and josh couldn't make it up i was solo that weekend it was like september 3rd or something i got into 46 yards of him belly crawled in and he bedded down in front of me and all i could see was the tips of his antlers and i'm ranging and i can't get a range but I knew he bedded by this tree, so I ranged the tree for like two hours, and I got 46 yards every time, 46 yards hitting the tree. Well, he stands up, I pull back, and when he stood up, I could see more of his body, so I got it in my head that he was further away. So I used a different pin without range and missed, missed my opportunity on a giant deer that I had sat 46 yards from for over two hours. Ever since then, I refuse to shoot a deer without knowing my range 100%. And then that goes back to trusting yourself, you know? Like we've said before, you know, you're spending all year going through your gear, shooting your bow, using your range finder, going and shooting rock chucks, like you're saying, like, you have to trust that your preparation has led you to that moment and you're gonna do what's right. Don't second guess yourself the last second. I regret that, That's a, that sucks. <laughs> Yeah, if I could just add on too, though, like like you look at Big Gal this year, not a lot of people know it, but Braxton drew on him once and then let the bow down because he didn't feel 100 percent the shot over uh what 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 was oh over your face mask, right? Yeah, I had a a little mesh face mask. <clears throat> when I drew that string back, I just couldn't feel it right mm -hmm. on my anchor point, and I I thought about I'm like no nah, that that's got to be it, <laughs> but I just I remembered that I said no got to be perfect or else I'm, I'm letting down. I can hunt him tomorrow. So I let down, I pulled the face mask off and drew back again and let it eat. I think in my experience, it's always, I've always had better results, like not overdoing it in those situations. You know, if you push it too hard and miss him or whatever and bump him and have headbutts disappear, you know. Even on the shot, heck, 
I'll admit it, when I shot at that freak buck and stuff, that still haunts me to this day. You know, and it was a little it was a little thing in my preparation that I overlooked that, that made me miss, you know, but that I mean, I tell you all these tips for shooting because I made that mistake and that's how I've learned to, to overcome it. But you know, one thing I've learned especially you put all this time in, you know, you feel like, oh my gosh, I got to kill this animal right now. Like it's got to be right now. You know, I found when I feel that you've got to kind of get yourself calmed down a little bit and take your time because if you're hurried, you're going to rush it and then, then you're not going to make it. So, I mean, just like you're saying, you knew everything wasn't perfect. That buck didn't go anywhere. You release a perfect arrow and he's dead or hanging on your wall. So, I mean... Just take that. My tip would be we always want to rush it sometimes. It feels like forever, but take that one extra second just to take a deep breath and make sure everything's perfect and feels perfect before you let it go. Because once you let it go, you can't you can't ever get it back. Oh, that's so important, man. I'm still sitting with regret over one arrow this year for those exact reasons. It'll probably haunt me for the rest of my life. Same thing. You know, uh, my mistake was... The deer was, I thought he was, he was definitely quartering to me, but I thought he was quartering to me from the opposite side. And I released my arrow feeling confident about it and it wasn't where it needed to go. Yeah, but another thing, you know, you hunt long enough, it's going to happen. I mean, that's just. Oh, yeah. And we can only control what we can control. But, you know, these, these animals deserve the respect that we can give them. I mean, that's how we, that's how we grow and evolve as hunters. Every one of us has probably made something like that. I look back at it. Brad still kind of teases me a little bit because like, I'm so hard on myself. Um, in fact, it, it's hard. For, I'm just barely even able to look at that deer and not, you know, not be sick. But, you know, that deer, even though I made a mistake, that deer has probably taught me 10 times more than even this big buck that I killed this year, you know? I mean, and that's what I, that may, that's what pushes me to be better. So in the long run, if we live and learn, you know, we can learn huge lessons from mistakes as well. Yeah, agreed. We should give some context on that, though, because I don't think this is a story that we've really shared, have we? Uh, have you guys heard the story of that freak buck? I, I've never heard it. Okay, so. I, I know a deer, I know a deer you're talking about, like the freaky one he, he found the year later, right? Yeah. In the, or in the spring. Yeah, yeah, in July, yeah. I'd killed, this was 2016 was the year. So, and I actually, talking about, like, hunting him with a bow, I had this buck at 40 yards, you know, I'm full draw, and he moved forward, I could just see his neck, essentially. So I passed the shot, and he walked into the trees, and I was like, did I do the right thing, you know? <laughs> so yeah. you did. And I mean, it worked out opening morning of the rifle hunt. He was there. We smoked him. So that evening, we this was a new area we'd hunted that year. We'd, I found this buck really low in the drainage, and I didn't want to bump him, so I'd never really gone very high. And so, like, when we killed the deer and went up and, and recovered him, that's the highest that we'd been in there. And so I was like, this is a good vantage up here. So we took the buck back to camp and came back up to that spot, up maybe 60, 80 yards above the kill site and sat down to glass and I was sitting downhill from Billy and I looked up at him over his shoulder I see this deer how far was he 750 and he was kind of you know I could just see it was a deer and threw my binoculars up and he has it's just essentially a three-point on one side and I could see that side I'm like oh he's a like an old three-point you know forked on the back and then he turns his head and I'm like hold up like this buck's got something funky going okay on. and then Brad freaks out like 
freaks out. <laughs> so I'm like, get on your gun, you're going to shoot this deer. Because he's got like a drop corkscrew drop tine off his base on his left side and like split main beam and like a couple of big cheaters. And he's like 24 inches tall. Like I'm just like, you got to kill this buck. So Which he's getting down on his gun and the buck walks down the hill and then stops like facing us. And he, we were kind of moving around, getting excited, and he'd seen us. And yeah, that buck, I mean, we moved, I moved maybe three feet, just slid, you know, so I could get a dead rest, and that buck picked us up, like, yeah. I so mean, he's, almost So he's looking, like, right at us, and I'm like, you got to kill this deer. And he was like, I don't think I want to kill him. He doesn't look very big. And I'm like, he's, he's big. Because my the, when I when I looked at him in my scope, all, I mean he's not really that wide, and all you could see was the front profile, and you just couldn't tell the mass. I mean he looked young to me. I was like, yeah, he's got a drop time, but we had scattered another deer, a big frame deer in there, and I I wasn't ready to be done. <laughs> and I kept saying, yep. yeah, but he's got a drop time. Yeah, he's freaking you know? out. And then Brad, what really got me was Brad said, you know what? You're gonna hunt the rest of your life, and you're never gonna find a deer like this ever. And then, when I, and then I started looking at him, and I was like, you know what? He is pretty cool. Send it. Yeah, so the, so he's so he turns sideways and walks down the, he's like, sun's on him perfect and dark behind him, right? So he's just, like, standing there in all of his magnificence. And I'm like, look at him right now. You yeah, we'll have this to, deer. yeah, we'll have to post the video. So anyway, he does, decides he's going to shoot him, shoots, and the bullet, you know, he got it on the phone scope. Bullet comes in, low. And you see his off leg kind of flip out. What happened is that bullet went pretty much, I mean, it was perfect, going to go right, you know, right in that front shoulder, but it just went low. It hit, it skimmed his brisket and then hit his offside leg. Barely, I mean, if it would have been two inches higher, it would have killed him. You know, the, the whole story, the, the story's on altitude. You know, we did everything right to recover that buck. Um, it just wasn't meant to be. And I had been like 50 yards from him like two different times. We really went back in there because there was a tree and I wanted to show Brad just how big that bear was. I mean, that's the reason we found him. Oh, dang. But that bear must have had him drug him down into a gully. And, you know, we're not for sure if the bear killed him or if he, he died, if, he, if the shot actually killed him. He, he was bleeding pretty good, but it was just one of those things. So That's cool you guys found him, though. I mean... It's unfortunate the way it went down, but that's pretty cool. You guys got were able to again take talking home. about teamwork. I was so you know I'd been in there solo for so long that you know it was fun to have you know we were there together and then you know that's probably one of the highlights I've ever had is just the emotions of seeing Brad's face when he turned around. And he said, "There's your buck," and I was just like, "What?" <laughs> I, I bet. He's like, "There's your buck." Yeah. He's like, "Where's a buck?" I'm like, "Your buck." <laughs> You know, I couldn't really talk because I was so excited about it. But anyway, yeah. so like that buck's left side went 101 inches. 105. 105 inches. Jeez. So he's got like wow. a 12-inch inside spread credit, but he's sportsman yeah, like, mid-180s. Like, mid so. Sorry for the tangent. Yeah. So You should post that video. I know. We need to put it together because we got like, yeah, we've we've shot got... and then we have the recovery and everything. But. Oh, just to say, you know, the what I found with that, um, maybe this will help somebody. I was using, it was my scale that was the problem. Um, and I kept really good good data. I mean, I shot, I shoot way past that. I mean, I make that shot almost 10 out of 10 times. The problem was the scale that I was using, I didn't double check it. 
and it threw every, about every every 40th round that I'd load, um, it threw about, it was about a half grain low for some reason. Um, as I got looking at my data, I figured it out, but it was just, the, nice. I mean, it was that one shell that was, that it threw that half grain and it made a difference of about, you know, about a half minute at that, that yardage, you know, I shot low and so, I mean, even paying okay. attention to that little detail, I had to, I had to go back and, and totally relook um, relook up my reloading setup and even how pre precise I had to be even with that powder um, and I'm actually using two scales now just to verify everything so that's crazy yeah well the other thing about having a like when you talk about being familiar with somebody else's rifle like now you got a backup gun too right like if you need to jump right. on somebody else's gun right anyways uh, let's get back into this I want you guys to talk, we talk a little bit about scouting. I want you to tell us a little bit about, you know, how to properly scout and what your guys' process is, really the nitty gritty of how to scout properly for these high cuts. I have a bit. question beforehand based on what the story was saying. We talk about e-scouting, right? Like I do the same thing. Like if I have a few minutes, Google is like always up on my computer and I'm just like, what about that spot? What about this spot? How much of your time are you guys looking at new spots versus like going back to spots that you've been in before? Right, because when you hunt an area, you're like, this buck has potential, of course. You know, like hearing your story with Big Al and like everything that happened there, like you'd, you'd seen him the year before. So, like, how much of your time are you like, well, let's just keep going back in here until we see all the bucks we saw last year and see who made it and how big they are, versus like, let's go check out this new area. We want to learn as much country as we possibly can, uh, just because that's more tools in the toolbox that you can pull out of when. Something's, something's not working and you need to fix it, pull that one out, go there, try it out. But uh, no, if a uh, spot consistently produces just good quality bucks, or if the age and the habitat and the genetics are in a spot, then we'll, we'll go to it every year. And we, we definitely have a couple of those, but honestly, the scouting season for, I mean, you probably, Rexton, it's probably a little different than me, but like, Going to the new spots is like my most exciting part of scouting season. It's learning that new country, going somewhere I've never been. It's just, uh, it's awesome. You know, I mean, I'm sure you guys all get the same emotions as we do. We definitely try to learn new country every summer because you can't, you can't just, there's just no way of guaranteeing a spot to produce something for you every year. And hunting pressure is fluid and is moving around every year. I think this year was a perfect example of it with the fires and the closures. People were just jumping fences and roads and going places they had never been to hunt because of the closures. And so then, like, what do you do? Like, yeah. if that's your only spot and this and it's just pounded with people, like, what do you do? You're screwed. So, which we didn't we didn't run into that issue, but I think learning the most amount of country you possibly can learn will never be something that you won't value. Yeah, and I think for for me for Google Earth, if it's a place you've already been to year after year. The only time I'm using Google Earth to look at those places is to find the places I haven't stepped foot on yet. Right. Um, so like where where the buck I killed this year was, was in a spot that you would not think that a deer would live, a big deer. You just wouldn't think he'd be there. And we found out why he was there. It's impossible to see unless you're standing there. You know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's just some smart buck and knows where people are going to be and all that stuff. Um, we've had this conversation before too is well maybe that's where his mom took him and he just kind of hangs out there and that's how he got old was 
he just so happened to live in a place where people aren't at. And so, so like, so to get back to your, your question is when I'm going to a spot on Google Earth that I've already physically been to, I'm trying to search out those angles, those different benches I can sit on, um, what rock croppings are going to work to see this part of the mountain that maybe I've never seen before. Or, you know, Google Earth, you can 360 it and just get different angles mainly. But I would say the majority of our time on Google Earth is uh, preparation for the next time. So on average, I think every year, how many different, how many new spots are you looking at? Just throughout that. It's like putting your feet into, right? Yeah. Is that what you're asking? We're probably doing half and half, don't you think, Story? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely, definitely half and half. But this last season was an exception, without a doubt. Um, yeah, well, when you find a 220-inch buck, you can't really go anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't venture out a whole lot last, last summer, but with good reason. I think what we usually do though is of course we're going to go and check back on the bucks that we remember from last year that we think have potential or ones that we just weren't able to get to um, weren't able to seal a deal on we're always going to go back and check on those that's your very best bet no matter what even if you don't get any time during the summer if you were able to hunt last year and you remember a good year that's where you need to be opening day you might still be there that's better than just throwing a pin on the map so we're always checking those spots, so it kind of depends on how many of those bucks we need to check on and how many locations they're in. But typically, I think that we split half of going back, and then the other half is, you know, it'll take a lifetime to go into every basin in these mountains. So we just want to learn it all. When do you guys start scouting? I mean, actually, boots on the ground. Uh, I think this year was a little bit later. Um, years past, me personally, in, in the years prior, uh, I would I would start mid July uh, around that actually after July Fourth weekend whatever weekends weekend after Fourth uh, of July and all my family stuffs out of the way I would just every weekend from then on out I'd be gone but uh, this last year I don't think we hit it until I think it's till the first of August we did one trip on the last weekend of July I usually start the last weekend of July I think that you can learn a lot going earlier uh, just as far as country goes. But those deer typically aren't in their final summer spot until that weekend. One spot that we come back to every year is like a migration route. So it's really fun to go there in the middle of July because you get to see a lot of deer come through, but it doesn't really hold any hard evidence as if that deer is going to be there come end of August because they're not quite in their home spot yet. So yeah. that's my, my uh, personal opinion is to kind of wait till the last weekend of July. Yeah, well, I think a lot of times we say, where does this buck live, right? But if he's only there from the beginning of August to, like, October, he's only living there for two months, you know? Especially, well, exactly. for these migratory deer, at least. So, I mean, I think you're right. I started really early this year, and I I mean, going into new country was very helpful, but you didn't know it was going to be there come hunting season, so. First scouted trip, we went in looking at the country and seeing how huntable it was and what kind of features were there and access versus looking for specific animals. I mean, we did that first one, gosh, that was like first of July, wasn't it? I think it was June. Yeah, it was really early, but I mean, we weren't expecting to see bucks, so we're fine. Man, you guys are hitting the nail on the head. I mean, if you're going to be up there that early, that's what you need to be there for, finding access and trails and water and things like that. And a good good tip to... something that you can do to do that 
we kind of use uh, June and July as family time. I mean, it seems like we're always on the go, right? I mean, you got to spend time with your family too. So right. June and July is kind of when we're camping with the family and going out to the lake. Something that I would recommend is on your camping trip, say, hey, uh, let's go camp over here at this trailhead. And then when all the ladies are sleeping in, go for an hour hike. Yeah, good tips, man. That's sweet. The other thing, too, that we I definitely noticed myself doing it a lot more this year, and I think it was uh, more kind of stress-induced, was looking for human activity in the middle of nowhere. After finding after finding Big Gal and going back every single weekend looking, I caught myself looking for horse crap and foot traffic and things like that. And I think that's something, I mean, even after deer season, when we were going into elk, when we were in the middle of elk season, and I both had killed beers and we we're in completely new country looking for elk. I still caught myself looking for human traffic, and we we're still looking at good bucks. And I was like, man, nobody comes up here. And so I think that's another thing too is just looking for human traffic and not just like over. Like I'm sure we all walk down random trails and there'll be a pile of horse crap. Like, oh, there's horse crap. But yeah. when you're on those trails and you don't see no evidence of it for a couple of miles, it's it's definitely something to log back into your brain. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip. When you're hunting a new area, what I've found is, like, yeah, you can see the country and see the deer, but if you're not paying attention to that kind of stuff, like, your first opening day in an area is, it teaches you a lot about who else is there. So stressful. And where they're going to be. And, yeah, I agree. It's like, I found this buck, but, you know, who traditionally hunts here? And and what's going to happen here? Does anyone else know he's there? And all, you know, all that stuff. Like, for me, I would rather hunt a little smaller deer by myself than a little bigger one with somebody else i mean you know like another group after that same animal or in an area that gets a lot of pressure just because it blows stuff up something to be said about that but i also learned this year well not this year i guess what was it 16 i had a buck this is a whole different tangent that we don't need to talk about but uh i had a buck that's coordinates were sold out from under me and the guy who bought (laughs) the coordinates ended up killing it oh yeah (laughs) we won't say it 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 won't take long for a listener to figure it out. So anyways, that kind of lit a fire under my butt, man. Like, when I see people, I'm like, all right, bring it on, buddy. I'm a better hunter than you. Come and try to kill this deer out from under me. It's not happening. Like, so so it it makes me just, it fuels it, man. Like, I see people and that deer's dying, I guarantee you. Like, they they don't stand a chance. Like, I know that sounds cocky, but I'm like, no, dude, I will out-hunt you, guaranteed. So... That's kind of a cool attitude to really have, though, and I've kind of learned that over time, especially from that experience, you know. Um, when you're confident in your abilities and your skills, like most of those people on the – the majority of the people on the mountain, I know that this trend is changing a little bit, especially with podcasts like this and more information is coming out, but the majority of people that are there are there because it's something that they do every year. They're just they're just there to fill a tag or whatever. More like more um, ritual. Yeah. Yeah, tradition. So, so – yeah, it's a traditional hunt for them. So so when I see people now, it's like, hey, they're in my spot. And, and it fuels me to make sure that I am on my game. And I promise you that I won't lose that buck due to something that I lack and they have. It's been a long time since I've had a really big deer that somebody else hasn't about. And even with that, even like this year, you know, I went in there. We thought we had this buck all to ourselves. We went in there and there's three other camps. And they were close enough that I knew that they had, they had scouted him and everything else. But like you're saying, to have the confidence, I knew where that buck was laying. And I had done my preseason work, so I knew exactly where to be. 
opening morning. These guys didn't, but we met a great friend on the mountain that day, just being cordial and walking up to him and saying, look, buddy, these are, we've scouted this. We know kind of what's here, not really telling him about the big deer, but he, you know, he gave us some information and I figured out he was hunting another deer that I'd seen. So I knew that he wasn't hunting my buck. And you know what? Um, he ended up killing a buck right next to my little brother. And, you know, we, we spent, you know, a couple hours talking. We got to be really, really good friends. And we came off the mountain together. So if you're up on the mountain and different things, you can be cordial and stuff. And, you know, you can meet some pretty cool people. You know, I was never going to show him a picture of that buck until he was in my backpack. <laughs> no, that's, that's an awesome point you just made, man. Um, the hunting community, we already have so much against us right now. Last thing we need to do is be fighting amongst ourselves, and especially on the mountain. I think you guys might know Aaron and Ernie from your side of the mountain. Do you happen to know them from Alpine? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, anyways, um, I'm actually going snowmobiling with them tomorrow. I met them on the mountain the year that I killed uh, my 200-inch typical. Um, they, you know, we camp, we throw our tents up right next to each other, and we were hunting different deer, and we've been great friends since. That that same trip, the guy that missed, he fired the first shots of the morning. He missed my 200-inch buck. I talk to that guy quite often now. I mean, not every day, obviously, but I mean, you know, it's it's a, it's important that you're like you said, you're cordial with the guys up there. Cause One thing that I found is there's nothing wrong with walking over there and saying, "Hey, bud, like we're on this mountain together. I don't want to be in your way. I don't want you in my way. What are you thinking?" And you know. You can just start talking. The thing that I found is if people make the effort to go in the high country and they're that far back, they're usually pretty cool guys. Once that when ice get, is broke. Yeah, the ice is broken. You're not all like, oh, what is he doing in my spot? Yeah, like you said, if they're back there, they're like-minded people. So, so Is that the same for non-residents and county four plates? No. <laughs> it is for non-residents, but not county four plates. Yeah, that's what I that's, that's what I figured. Nice correction. <laughs> no, some of the best dudes I've ever talked to and met, and I have the utmost respect has been on the mountain. So I think, like what we just touched on, not I don't need to reiterate anything you have, any of you guys said, but like you know what it takes to get there, and they're there too. Then holy crap, I got a ton of respect for you. And but you then I also understand Braxton's point. Like I'm gonna beat you. <laughs> Let's talk about pack goats a little bit. Sure. Do you own, uh, is it Josh who had them first, or how would you get into them? And tell me how, how you use them and why you love them, because I know you love them. Yeah. That's the story. I do. I do love my goats. So, uh, <laughs> no, last year, actually, so I was kind of looking into pack goats uh, to begin with, and I heard a podcast with Mark Warnke talking about them, and, and Mark Warnke is like the leading pack goat expert out of Boise, Idaho, and to be honest, he kind of shut me down. Like what he was saying in the podcast, he was kind of like, oh, you know, they're really hard animals and you got to spend all this time with them and you got to train them and this and that. And I was kind of like, oh, well, I guess they're not for me, you know. So I kind of just abandoned that idea. I was on the mountain last year and I I get to the top and I'm hearing this, bah, you know, and I'm like, I knew there was goats up here, you know. I'm like, oh, sweet. This would be cool to tell all of my biologist buddies, tell story that there's mountain goats up here and I get closer and I see a white blur and I'm like, oh, dude, this is awesome. Well, it turned out that it was pack goats tied to some trees. and <laughs> uh, So I was like, oh, that's cool. So I kind of like just peeked over the edge, was glassing, and the guy started walking up towards me and I recognized one of his goats. And 
before actually before he started walking up to me i had service i opened up instagram and i just started scrolling trying to figure out where i saw that goat and it turns out that it was kyle williams oh right on and so he walks up and i'm like hey are you kyle and he looks at me like one of my family members dead like why are you searching for me in the mountains you know <laughs> so anyways he was gonna go home that day and i was like hey man i i got a lot to that i want to learn about goats you mind showing you mind staying and we can scout together and I'll show you some of the mountain. You show me your goats. So anyways, long story short, we became pretty good buddies and we ended up hunting through the year together. Man, those goats are awesome. The number one thing about goats that helps guys like us is um, specifically in Wyoming, there's no water up top. If you're going to use pack stock, typically you're going to have to, I mean, you guys use horses sometimes. So Typically, you guys are probably camping down at a creek or a pond or a lake or whatever, right? So I rarely use a horse, but Billy uses them sometimes. Um, it just depends. I, my dad doesn't listen to this, but sometimes he takes care of the horses and get us in and out. Sometimes he does. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you know, and, and that's one thing. My dad is one of his favorite things, the happiest time, not only killing big bucks, but also just watching the horses work. So that works for us. You know, I use them as a tool when they, they don't do what I want. You're fighting them, and it, that just ticks me off. That's one reason my dad's there. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, there's definitely a place and a time and a need for horses. Yeah, don't get me wrong on that. But uh, just just to be as efficient of a high country mule deer hunter as you can, I think pack goats are the way to go. I, I mean, if you're going to use pack stock, in my opinion, I know they're the way to go. I've used everything but llamas, and in my until somebody proves me otherwise, I don't know what you'd need a llama for. Might as well have a horse at that point. You can ride a horse, right? <laughs> Companionship. <laughs> yeah. I guess you never know till you go. But anyways, the pack goats, they can go four days. We've had them go five days without water. You take them to a creek, and they still won't drink. That's the cool thing, man. You, Wyoming has no water up top. You have to pack all your water up there. So it's a pain in the butt to get water up there anyways. And those goats, they get all their hydration from the grass, just like a deer does. So they can go, deer typically go three days. Well, a goat a goat can go four days, maybe even longer without water, depending on how hydrated the grass is. So that's that's really helpful. But, you know, you can't ride them. They don't, they don't pack 300 pounds or whatever, but... You get enough of them, they're, they're easy going. You don't have to lead them. Um, as long as they're in decent shape, you can throw 50 pounds on a 200-pound goat, and they'll go anywhere you go and, and then some. Kyle and I were setting a tent up, and we looked around, and we're like, where the crap are all the goats? We looked off the edge of the cliff, and I'm not kidding you, there's a 300-foot cliff, and those goats are just hanging out eating the grass on the side of the cliff. Hmm. They're pretty cool that way. They're sure, sure-footed, and they're just really fun, man. Like, they're like a Labrador. They'll They'll come and lay in your lap, and they'll want you to pet them and stuff. But, I mean, you can hunt with them. They can follow you around. They're not making a bunch of noise. As a matter of fact, I know guys that will elk hunt with them on purpose and kind of use them as decoys. You know, all the hoof noises and the herd noises as they're pulling grass and stuff. They call elk into 15 yards, and the elk see the goats, and they're like, huh, another four-legged animal, and they'll shoot them. Yeah. So, so I got a couple of specific questions for you because I've looked into them a lot, and I, I think there's a few things that are spread around about ghosts that I don't know if it's true or not. Some of those. You gonna talk about diseases? No, I'm not gonna talk about <laughs> okay. diseases. <laughs> talk about the behavior of them, right? So, like, like when I've talked to people before, there's a guy in Utah that I talked to years ago, 
this was kind of pre-social media back in the forum days and I didn't know anyone else that was using goats and he was. And so mm -hmm. he would say like he'd never tied his goats up. He'd kill big mule deer, but they would just kind of follow him around like even on the stocks and stuff. How do you manage them? Can you tie them up or are they always in your back pocket? Yeah, so you're going to make me say this out loud in public, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot of people say never leave your goats tied up at camp. There's probably a lot of truth to that. I mean, they're still animals. They deserve uh, respect just just like anyone else does. And um, if you tie them up and leave them at camp, you're running that risk of a bear or whatever else coming through camp. And, Same um, thing with a horse, but I think goats specifically, you know, I don't want to go into the whole disease thing because it's a bunch of hogwash. I will say that publicly. But, you know, people say, you know, you don't want to leave goats unattended because if they run off, then you're having a disease issue in the forest. Right. And and you still don't want to do that just for the namesake of we want to have best practices. But anyways, um, what we typically do, they follow us untied, unleashed up the mountain. They'll just they'll follow anybody. I mean, you pass people on the trails, you kind of got to hold on to them so they don't follow them down the mountain or whatever but but anyways we'll get to camp we just let them free graze while we're at camp they just hang out they don't go nowhere at night time we do tie them to trees typically what we've found when we're deer hunting usually when you're scouting or hunting you're going to be getting on a high mark and sitting down and just glassing pretty much all day and that can kind of be a nuisance if you have goats just kind of walking around everywhere right tipping your spotter over and all that so we will either leave them at camp, depending on how far we go, or we'll bring them with us, and before we peek over the edge, we'll tie them up. So that's that's kind of how we run deer hunting. But elk hunting, I know I haven't used them a whole lot. I'm kind of new to it, which is another point we probably need to talk about. But um, as far as elk hunting, I know a lot of guys that just leave them loose all day, and it works well for them. I think uh, what I was getting at earlier with the Mark Warnke podcast that kind of shut me off to him, and I would encourage a lot of people to uh, maybe take it with a grain of salt. I don't think that goats are for everybody, but if you're able to take care of them and I guess just test them out and see if they work for you, they're really not as hard as what I was led to believe that they that they are. You know, like I think if you're going to have rock star goats that are all muscled up, yeah, you probably do have to do what Mark suggests. But um, to have goats that are going to work for you and make your life a whole lot easier it's super easy, like, to be honest. Like, you got to feed them and hike with them. My goats are straight gangsters. That's what we call them. They're just, they're just kind of – they're thugs off the street. They're not purebred goats. We just pick them up and throw a pack on them, and there's no training to it. I mean, yeah, there's some corks. Every goat has a little cork, but we just throw packs on them, and they go. They are named after gladiators, so – yeah yeah my whole pack string is named after gladiators it's awesome that's funny but how many do you have like can you take one goat mm -hmm. in in on a scouting trip with you or not do you have to bring a few yeah you can take one goat but i don't think most people would recommend it they'd probably say at least take two mm -hmm. but yeah you can take one yeah, i know people that have for sure right now i'm sitting at 10 and two of them are just like six month olds or eight months now that's the thing with the goat herd is they can't pack until they're three and a half years old. I guess a horse is the same way, but a horse is going to live a lot longer than a goat. So if you're going to like have a herd of goats, you kind of got to have them spread out in different ages. It's kind of important to have a, a new herd coming up into the, right. into the ranks. So you just throw mm -hmm. them in the back of your truck? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, dude. I got, when I take them all, I got a little two place horse trailer, but when we just take four or five, I throw them in my camper topper in the back of the truck. 
and that's, that's the other cool thing man you don't have to haul a trailer up a bumpy road mm -hmm. i can get to places people with horses can't i think another thing too mentioned though is like for those solo diy guys that are like sometimes battling that that lack of a companion or that lack of a partner because i mean you go through it sometimes you just get bored and like there's only so much you can read there's only so much you can write about there's only so much you can do when you're by yourself but a couple of these scouting trips these last this last summer Jackson's work schedule get flipped around and I, I ended up by myself and I'd take the trips by myself I don't know it's just it was it didn't feel like I was by myself just, uh, I don't know how to explain it but they're like, they're gonna they're start like calling a, us creepy goat guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably but I mean it's just like having your dog like they they, they all just have crazy character but to the solo guy like it would be a huge step in continuing to do what we do and hunt in the high country because it's gonna, you're gonna it's gonna give you more energy. It's gonna keep you in the game longer, and you're gonna be doing it for as long as you want. That's the number one thing I think we need to touch on when it comes to goats is our energy level this year was amazing. I remember multiple conversations that Story and I had while we we're on top of the mountain, just like, dude, I still got so much gas in the tank. Like, I can go and go and go. And I completely attribute that to the goats. Like they packed all of our stuff. They packed all of our meat, packed our water. We brought in steaks. We brought in three bags of coffee just to have different flavors. Like, are you kidding me? Like we didn't even Ziploc it like you normally do, right? Like just the main thing is like your energy level is just awesome. And yeah, you know, on the flip side, people are going to say, well, I can get that with a horse and I can bring in a wall tent and all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, you can. But my point is, how low maintenance a goat is i don't have to wake up at 2 a.m water my horses spend an hour and a half putting a saddle on them and pack gear and then another hour up the mountain to the top of the peak mm -hmm. i'm already there mm -hmm. i wake up when the sun comes up i don't have to do nothing with the goats and i'm on my binos so not just physically but mentally i'm in the game all day long with goats so i think that's huge so brad if i get goats can we keep them at your house <laughs> my dad, my dad I, I had this conversation with my dad he said he wasn't going to keep the goats down at the ranch so they do really well around around our animals too post-harvest we haven't had any issues with them what all of you packed bears and stuff or just up in deer mostly yeah yeah we uh, killed a bear this spring in idaho actually one of the goats completely packed the bear out um we went around to all the goats and let them all sniff it and they were just like eh. I'm kind of busy eating grass. Quit bothering me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, that's another cool point about the goats that story brings up is, you know, I remember we killed an elk when I was younger, and we had the horse blow up and it ran down a rock slide, broke its legs. We had to put the horse down, carry the pack saddle out. You're not gonna have that with the goat. They do not care. I have pictures of my big deer and the goats just standing over it eating grass. Like they just don't care. And I've had horses step on my feet. I have a broken pinky toe from a horse. A goat can lay on you and not hurt you, you know? When you're packing animals out with them, do you just put a one quarter on them, or what are you doing? No. The weight they can handle is all based upon how much body weight they have. So they can handle 25% of the body weight. So a 200-pound goat can handle 50 pounds, and that's a big goat. So you're just boning the meat yep. in and then just distributing it? Okay. Yeah, that is the bummer meat. thing. Yeah, that's, that's your huge. whole pack and water. Yeah, one goat. One goat. And, and you know, and we got, what did we do? What did we bring, seven, six last year? Yeah, six. So 
you can bring basically whatever you want. That is the bummer thing. I mean, if you want to hang quarters and stuff, you don't get to do that with goats because you have to – each side of the pack has to be the exact amount of weight in each pannier. So that is kind of one of the drawbacks, to be honest. But it's still – it is still weight off your back. All I have to say is I killed a bull at 10,000 feet this year, and I didn't pack an ounce of meat. <laughs> wow. So – Right on. Thanks for sharing that stuff. That's I've always had a couple of questions, and it's I just never had somebody that has goats and experience to ask them. It seems like everyone's a little bit different with them, but it's nice to know you can do those things if you need to. Let's talk about transitioning from scouting mode to hunt mode. This is our favorite conversation house story. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you Seriously, you have to treat it like a light switch. You can't baby yourself into it. It's just... When it's game on, it's game on. You, I mean, every skill and every tool and every lesson you've learned, you have to you have to utilize it this for every chance you get because your chances are limited up there. As we all know, I, I can't express that enough. And there was a couple of times, actually both times this year. I mean, I think it was September third. My buck, he he bedded in a great spot. I was just sitting there looking at him like he was. And Braxton's like, "What are you doing?" Oh crap! Gotta wake up. Like, let's do this. And then in, instantly, like in my head, I'm like taking pictures prior to my stock, game planning in my head, things like that. And, it, and then it happened again too. Like, I, I think maybe not right now because you guys all have your own opinions too. But to, that you guys need to discuss. But even transitioning from archery season to rifle season, there's another mental switch you have to flip. Oh yeah, I know that. I, I got I got to experience that as well. I can't express it enough. It's a switch. It's, once it's game on, it's game on and all out. Yeah, I think I think the hardest thing people get hung up on is you spend a month, month and a half, whatever it is, sitting on the same glassing perch, watching a deer, taking videos of it, watching his behaviors. He's out in the middle of a meadow, whatever he's doing, and you're just watching. So then when it's time to go kill him, people kind of get hung up on like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know this aspect of, of the hunt right now. So far, my hunt's been watch and sit. So, okay, well, what do I do? Well, I guess I need to, like, bed him down perfectly and then see where it goes from there. So I think people are just too slow. Like, there's definitely a line between being too aggressive and not being aggressive enough. You have to completely switch out of scout mode and into hunt mode. What I've learned is you're not going to kill a deer if you just sit there and watch it. I think best case scenario is definitely if you can watch a buck bed down and you've got your wind right and you can sneak over a little hill and get within range and let him stand up out of his bed two hours later and freaking slip an arrow in there, that's awesome. But the times that you're going to get a scenario like that, probably not even once a year. Like, honestly, like, let's be honest with ourselves. I've had that happen once. Like, it's just really hard to do. So I think you got to be just aggressive, and you have to understand deer behavior. You have to understand the time of the season you're in, and sometimes you have to make educated guesses on what the deer are going to do, and you have to go after it. This year was a perfect example of exactly what I'm explaining. I'll just tell the quick snippet of, of this example of the story, but um, I saw my buck, finally spotted him. He was off the cliff on the edge feeding, but it was like 3.30 p.m., so typically a deer's going to stand up around 3 o'clock because the sun's hitting him on his he's on his third bed by now. So the sun's hitting him at 3 o'clock. He's going to stand up and feed for a little bit and move to another bed. 
I knew that, and I said, okay, he's not going to feed forever. He's going to bed down. But if I just sit here and watch him bed, for me to get clear around the mountain, take a two-hour stalk, however long it's going to take for me to be successfully get in range, it's going to be dark by then. And by then, he's going to be up and moved again anyways because the sun's down. He's ready to feed again. So I had to make the guess that, okay, there's a group of trees above him. He's probably going to bed in that trees in about 30 minutes. Let's go. So I just made an educated guess. That's probably where he's going to be. I took off. I went, dropped my pack, got in my, in my stocking boots, and I headed towards those trees as fast as I could before the shadows started hitting him. Because once the shadows hit him, he's going to get out of his bed and start feeding, and he won't be in those trees anymore. Then I really won't have any idea where he is because I didn't watch him bed. And you don't get that opportunity every time so you got to be aggressive as you can and then once you're within that 150 200 yards that's when you slow down i slowed down and i found him in those trees and i kid you not i raised my range finder to range the trees i have no idea if he's really in there i just think he is arrange the trees and as luck would have it he stands up inside my range finder as my range finders to my face and i get a perfect <laughs> range on him i mean that's a perfect example of I had to be aggressive. I got there in the nick of time for him to stand up. If I would have wasted any more time, he would have moved out of that bed, and I may have never seen him. Um, one thing as you're talking, you know, the transition between scout mode and, and archery mode, you know, I found that in myself just sitting there watching the bucks, and then you're just like, oh, crap, now I, now I can kill him. Now I don't know what to do. Um, one thing that I've done the past few years that's really helped me is even scouting season. Even if I see a big deer, I'm always thinking, okay, if I could kill this buck, how am I going to do it? And that has yep. always helped me to, to keep processing and, and trying to second guess what that animal's going to do. He's going to feed in here. He's going to bed here. You know, I'd make my approach here. That's really helped me because that's, again, that's just, and then, then you're sitting behind him and you're watching him and then does he do that or does he not? And then you're just constantly learning about, you know, their behavior. But one thing that, that I've noticed, especially, and learned from your story, Brax, is, you know, sometimes you don't have all the information, but you just have to get close enough within striking distance and then, you know, keep reevaluating. Because if you hadn't been there, you know, you're not, you, you wouldn't have been able to slip an arrow through him. Sometimes you just have to get within striking distance, even though you don't have all the information. Yep, definitely. Yeah, good advice. I, so for quite a few years, I, I grew up here, and I lived in Utah for school, and I got residency and a job down there. It's a lot harder to get a tag down there. So we'd get archery tags or short-range weapon tags. Right, I found myself with a rifle tag again, and I remember watching this buck, and he was probably 300 yards, and I'm looking at him and then I just was like what am I doing I can kill this buck right now you know like I, I didn't make a switch so I did but it was definitely something that my mindset wasn't in the right place you know I was still going through the motions and hunting and doing all that but I was when it, when it came down to it I, I hadn't switched over until I kind of caught myself in my routine and it's hard I mean that's another reason that it's great to hunt with a partner Story and I both were watching the deer he killed this year. We're like, oh, sweet, man, this is cool. We're going to get some video of him before you kill him. And then I look at Story and I said, why the heck are you standing here next to me? Go down there and kill that deer. I'll video him. You know, like, you know, if you're by yourself, you might not make decisions like that. So, yeah. 
we were looking for that deer and it wasn't panning out. Typical story, guy comes up through the basin, blows him out. We have no idea where he's at. I mean, we, we've all experienced it. And then he finally shows up and I remember specifically saying, and this is this refers back to what I said just a few moments ago where like going from archery hunting to rifle hunting. So I remember specifically telling Braxton this. I was like, all right, we just need to find, watch him bed, watch him bed. Like, don't lose eyes on him. Like, let's put him to bed, put him to bed. And like 10 <laughs> minutes go by and that's when Braxton switch. That's when Braxton switch happened. He's like, dude, if he's going to stay out in the open and feed, like you need to get there and just and end it. It, it panned out, but yeah, I definitely wanted him to bed, and that was just the archery mindset. And then, then I realized, sure. like, oh, I, I got a, I got a boomstick that I can reach out there and touch from more than sixty yards. So, yeah, I think that's good advice, and just go for it. You know, like you said, Rex. I mean, so many times it's been like, well, I don't think that's going to pan out, or it's like I just went for it and it worked out. If you're thinking like, okay, I mean, I've been on hunts where I'm not seeing anything. You know, and I'll well, we plan this, and it's this is how I want it to play out. As you know, it never does. And then everything can go wrong, and then suddenly, I mean, like like your hunt story this year, the guy comes in, blows your buck out. You're like, what the crap? This sucks. And then suddenly you find him again, and your whole hunt turns around in one second. So, I mean, I think that's important to keep in mind. It just takes one second to change your hunt from the worst hunt to the best hunt. Another tip that I learned this year is you used to find the highest vantage point and then just, just pound it with the glass. I was in an area with my dad that you didn't necessarily do that. We weren't seeing the deer that we usually do. And so I just said to dad, I said, you know what? I've studied this. I know the angles. The only angle to get in this spot is to go up through here. It's kind of risky because we might blow deer out. If I look at this mountain, this is probably where that deer is going to be because no one can see me. And so, you know, just using the skills, the archery skills of watching the wind, we snuck in those bedding areas. You know, that's actually how I found my big deer. I never would have seen him if he hadn't walked in there. Be a little bit aggressive. You know, you watch the wind just like you're playing a stock. I mean, I never would have seen that deer if it hadn't been for doing a little bit of getting right in the cover. I mean, we had him at 80 yards. And I never would have seen him or gained the information that I had that I ended up killing So. You know, I blew that buck out, and I put a trail camera on that bed to see when he came back, and he came back that night. As long as you're not stupid, and you're still watching your surroundings and stuff, I think you can get close. And if everything's not perfect, then you back out and try again. Oh, that's so true, Billy, and everything's not going to be perfect, and it doesn't have to be perfect because these conditions are going to change halfway through your plan anyways. I think it's important to like be methodical about it, of course, but... But you're not going to have the perfect stock. You're not going to have perfect nothing. And we always hear stories. This is one of the biggest things I've ever learned hunting high country mule deer is I grew up hearing stories that if you bump a buck, if another hunter bumps your buck, you're never going to see that deer again. That's the uh, perfect wives tale about the gray ghost, right? But, but really the reality of it is when you're archery hunting, they're still in their summer pattern. Um, at least the first bit of archery they are. And like you just said, they're going to jump right back into that bed. They're going to go back into their routine. I mean, they get bumped by coyotes and mountain lions and you name it. They go back to that spot because that's what they have chosen is a safe place for them. They're not going to run into the next basin because they heard a weird noise in the basin they've been living in for two months. And then they have to relearn everything that they knew about what's safe and what isn't in a new basin they're going to come back to what they know is safe i think a great analogy for it is 
Rex and I, we've, we've talked about it in depth, and I, I actually think we, we picked it up from Clay, and I, it couldn't be any more perfect, is where Deer lives, that's, that's his house. And in the house, you got multiple rooms. And I think he, I think he even relayed this onto you guys too. And in the time you guys had him on, but yeah. like that couldn't be any more true. Deer's not gonna go and to its neighbor's house and make that his house. Like his house is his house. He has different rooms to escape to, and essentially one of those rooms is his bedroom. That's the main goal: is figuring out that bedroom of your target buck. But he ain't gonna leave his house for a creaking stair or anything like that. Let's just. That's part of the life there, and they're they're used to it, and something different than what they haven't already experienced, and they do it year after year, and they're gonna come back. You know, I think about it and put it even in our perspective. I mean, how many times has there been a something in the night, and you you get up and you're like, what the crap, you know? And you're on edge and everything. I wouldn't leave my house because of that. You know, that's my safe no. spot. So why, you know, why do we expect them to? They feel safe. You'd I mean, you'd have to really push me for me to leave my house. And it's exactly, yes. Billy. There, you would leave your house though if the zombie apocalypse showed up, and that's what we call opening day arrival season. Yep. <laughs> well, we've exactly. all seen it, right? Like we've all seen bucks when they're not in their house anymore, and you can tell by their body language that they hate it, and they're just mm-hmm. moving like. You watch those big bucks in their house, how often are they moving fast? It's really, really rare. Like, everything's deliberate. You can almost tell the age of a buck by the way that he moves and how fast he moves, it seems like. When they get out of that country that they're used to and out of their home, they move so much more different. There's just they're, they're on alert. You can just tell that they're hating life and they're just wanting to get out of there. And I think that's a huge thing to hit on is the more you're out there, the more you're going to learn, and that information is vital. You know, and there are exceptions. I mean, there's the drama is one of them. But, you know, for the most part, in my experience, if you find a buck in his summer pattern and find him, you better hunt him there, start there, and then work out. Uh, because most of the time, even if the, even if the pressure comes, they found some little nook or cranny that you just can't see into. And they find yeah. a way to, to get away from it. They go nocturnal or not seen. But it's amazing some of the places that I found big deer. And there's people all around me. And I'm happy you circled back to that, Billy. Is, you know, earlier you were talking about getting different vantages and different angles on the mountain. And eventually you actually walked into the timber to find your deer. And I wish Josh was here to talk about this. But Josh is an absolute wizard when it comes to this. He killed a 215-inch buck just by still hunting the timber the second week of rifle. And I think a lot of hunters get stuck on watching a basin. And it's beautiful. Trust me, I love the basins. It's awesome to be up there and watch deer in them. But by that time of year, your big buck's not there anymore. So you're either going to have to, A, find a new vantage of where he is, because maybe he switched bedrooms of his house, or B, you're going to have to go looking for him, and you're going to have to still hunt the timber. Because that's likely where they've moved to. The more that I hunt big bucks, I think that, that I mean they're up, they're up high. They're getting the best grass they can. But you know, we're talking about transitions. You know, summer patterns versus when they go hard horn. You know, and the more that I've studied, I don't know if this is right, but it seems what's happening. You know, they they start losing that summer coat. Their their coat gets a little bit thicker. They're starting to get that fall coat where it goes gray. You know, they're starting to go hard horn. If you don't get them in between, you know, the first couple days, you know, the only time I've been able to relocate a buck is down in the cover. Um, and I think, you know, if, and you think about it, if they were up in where the people shade. could see them, 
they're going to get shot. Number one, they're not going to grow big, so they've learned to come off of it. And number two, they're in the shade. You know, that's where not only the cover is, but a lot of the times the feed is as well. So they can feed in the cover. They're safe, and no one's looking for them. You know, our rifle hunt is September 15th. And you usually do have a couple days, you know, they might be out in the open. But after that, especially once, that, the, once those rifle shots go off, what are those big bucks doing? They're low, they're lower. And you know what? The crazy thing to me is how many big deer I see that where they're not up first thing in the morning, but you find them standing when they're rebedding and they're feeding at 11, 12, or that two to three time. I mean, honestly, when I see big deer after that, that first three or four days, that is where I see them is in the cover of between 11 and 12 and two and three. I mean, I know from a scouting perspective and a hunting perspective, you don't get to see a whole lot of targets throughout the year by hunting that way. And it's a needle in a haystack, but that's where the big old bucks are going to be. They just don't stand a chance yeah, in the big basins. I think another thing to pay attention to, like think about this year, feed-wise versus the past like three up high. This year, everything burned up. Like in the past two or three years, they were staying high like through August. This year, we went into spots, like we were in there late July, we were seeing bucks. Early August, they were still there. But it seemed like a couple weeks earlier, they were pulling off that stuff because the feed was all burned up. Did you guys see that at all too? Oh yeah. Yeah, we saw the exact same stuff. We made the initial trip where we, we spotted Big Al and then the next weekend, I think I came up by myself and I told them, when I was on the mountain, I was like, I told all of them, I'm like, guys, like, it's, it is yellow up here. It is crunchy, and it's only the second weekend of August. We were seeing 150, 170 range bucks, like, everywhere. I'm like, this is awesome. This is, a, like, this is the diamond of a place, you know? And then that next weekend I went, I wasn't seeing hardly, hardly any numbers. Uh, everything was crunchy. Everything was dying off. The only stuff that was green was in those, like, tertiary hydrology systems right next to those, like, just older runoff streams. Everything else was just dying off. And then that's when I realized that if I was going to find anything, it was going to be last and first 30 minutes, and it was going to be right next to the timber. And that's actually, I actually picked up Big Al at, like, last light. And, but, yeah, it was crazy. And they didn't believe me. They're like, oh, whatever. And then they came up, and they were like, holy crap, he's dead. That's kind of cool about, like, when you hunt longer and you see these different weather patterns, like that winter kill of 1617. The last time we had anything even close to that, 92, 93, like, we're all kind of young bucks, but none of us were hunting age then. So to come into something like this, like, it's all behavior learning that if we keep notes and kind of pay attention to it, if you're up there and say, I like to keep a little notebook, or I'll come home and type it in the computer after and say August 11th like much drier than last year this is what I saw and it just helps you put the pieces of the puzzle together what's cool about this platform here is we can kind of share bounce these things that we've seen off of each other give us a little more mm -hmm. information into understanding their behavior because it's tough like sometimes you'd be like oh I got it figured out and then you realize that you know less ever did no, yep. it's, it's kind it, of you know what Josh and I noticed I was 16 right yeah yeah the hunt year of 16 we actually called a biologist on this so it's Conversely of what you're saying about everything dried up, we noticed that the bucks took forever to get to a high country. And we just kind of had our own little theory on that. We're like, well, everything they want is already met down low. All that feed down there already has the protein and nutrients that they need in it down low. So they're not going to come up unless they have 
you. That's, I mean, that's the only reason they come to the high, well, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons they go to the high country in the first place is because of that nutrient-rich feed up there. But, so we called the biologists and we're like, are all the deer really dead? Or are they just down low still in the timber eating all that rich feed because we had so much moisture? It turns out that, at least from what we saw, that that was the case. Um, they eventually did make it to the high country, but it took a long time. Did you guys see that too? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And it was, I mean, the feed was so crazy that year. It seemed like the deer were, I mean, I think there was fewer deer, but they're more spread out and kind of in their different habitat zones because there was feed everywhere. We love talking with the local biologists over here and just bouncing ideas and different things off of them, reading through the data. I'm, I'm the numbers nerd, and I dig through harvest statistics and all that stuff all winter and compare it and just kind of look at this and that. What I think might happen next year, just something to do when there's nothing else to do. You know? So, you know, Billy just put a video out on his YouTube channel. They went over and collared some deer. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah. With the Wyoming Mule Deer Initiative. Those listeners that aren't familiar with that, it's, how long ago did they start? Was it 2013? First thing. Where they collared like 70 does and then they track them so they, they'll, they'll net them, they'll capture them and they'll do uh, stats on them twice a year. It's like pre-winter and then like coming out of the winter in March. It was actually fascinating. You've heard about it all forever and then go do it, but they need help. They need volunteers. This project's getting bigger. Uh, they're up to collaring over 292 deer, if I remember. So, I mean, that, that's a lot. We did about 34 deer that day. And that was from, you know, dawn until we couldn't see them. So you think 34 and they have 290-something now. That's a lot of work. It was amazing to me to see just the whole process and then just to be able to talk to not only Gary Freilich, the, the biologist, but to see Dr. Monteith and just the research that goes into that. It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, they're making management decisions because of it, because we're understanding you know, where, these, where these animals, where their migration corridors are. So then we can put you know, conservation projects in there to keep the habitat so that they can winter well. Um, we're learning about you know, how important that nutrition summer is you know, and even some competition between the deer, even in the summer, not only in the winter grounds, but the summer. And I mean, just fascinating research that, that is going on. And, well, this year they collared bucks, so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, the progression of, you know, these younger deer um, as they survive, you know, what they're doing throughout their lifespan. Mule Deer Hunter needs to go and see that because it was, it was a fantastic opportunity and something that I'm going to look forward to every year, if not, you know, every six months. And everybody should go check that out. You know, they have cool, like, migration routes, all that kind of stuff. So we went to this presentation, and one of Dr. Monty's master's students was presenting to us. So she's got a graph that's showing, like, fat content of these does from, like, 2013 through December 2017 is when this meeting was. What was interesting, you know, we, we get a bad winter kill, like, every five to eight years here, right, where it knocks the herd back down a little bit. And then they were, But pre-2016-17, we'd gone quite a few years. Like, a pretty good string of mild winters and kind of wet summers and stuff. And so what was interesting mm-hmm. about that is we saw that fat content fell. Like, from 2015, it started to fall, even though, like, there was, there's more deer than ever on the range. But what was, what was interesting is after that bad winter kill, when the population dropped back down, December 2017, right? So this is, they've come through the bad winter. They've gone through that summer. They're about to winter again. Their fat content jumped like way up by like six or something. I was like, hold up here. And so I, I pulled her aside after and I was like, 
why would like this seems indicative of like summer range competition because it's a you're post summer you haven't even gone through the winter yet so she was like yeah that's exactly what it is we'd reach carrying capacity most likely right we had enough competition on the summer range between deer and elk and cattle and sheep that it was starting to affect the health of the animals what's interesting about yeah. that is sort of some of that stuff you can look at and take this data and then you can take these changes that you see year after year after year in weather patterns and all that and kind of put the puzzle together i mean you'll notice that year 17 we maybe didn't see as many bucks but we found some really nice deer that year when we expected not to based on what everyone was telling us it's kind of cool to be able to go back and look at that data and our experiences and kind of cross them over and have some of those dots absolutely you know and this is what we're talking about with conservation and management when it takes these research studies that really have hardcore evidence so that we actually know what to a point know what's going on so that we can make management decisions and have the information to make it correctly so that the, the resource is sustainable. I'm just curious, since your background is a little bit in this story, I'd just, I'd just be curious as what what your thoughts are on all of this. Brad had mentioned it. Uh, he mentioned the term carrying capacity. I think like a lot of people are hung up on what would have been like the 60s to the 80s era when there was just giants running everywhere, you know, like people were passing on 28 inch or they weren't shooting anything unless it was 30 inches and, or more. They would just drive by it. You know, it was, it was the deer hunting prime time, I guess you could say. But what a lot of people don't realize is uh, considering the infrastructure and the fragmentation of, of migration routes and everything from that time period to where we are now, it'll never be that good. And I think that's something that people need to start realizing is it's never going to be as good as that. And there's a lot of reasons for it. And it's, it's very dynamic, very complex, but carrying capacity of any any wildlife population just any population in general is it's not it's not static it's fluid it's consistently changing year after year doing these big initiatives and these big research projects and all the data that goes into them there's so much data that goes into them it's astronomically crazy because i mean they're taking more than just deer it's going all the way down to the plant densities and invasive studying invasives everything like that comes into these into these research projects what it's all coming together for is trying to manage ahead of time for those drops and those rises to that carrying capacity because it's fluid it's consistently changing populations are falling and that's what we saw with the big winter kill is a drastic drop and now what we're seeing is we're seeing this a somewhat of a steady incline and so these big projects what they're doing is allowing managers and managing agencies gaming fish forest service blm all, all these agencies to work together to and attempt to make the right decision for those for those curves if all that makes sense it's, it's, it's so i don't know it's just so complex and yeah. i'm definitely not the most knowledgeable or most researched individual about it all but i think that's one thing that if there's anything i can say is every year's different everything's changing and it'll never be like it what it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s well it's everything everything's different you've had habitat loss fragmentation oil development uh, homes being built exactly ranges we've got interstates and freeways highways that weren't there then or weren't traffic like they are now so you didn't have those corridors like migration blockage and all i mean everything's different so i mean what's what's cool in talking to gary frailing our local biologist here is he said one of the biggest takeaways that we've had we've had the population objective or what they would consider like their carrying capacity for mule deer in the wyoming range at fifty thousand animals that's how it's been forever since the 80s 
and he said we've adjusted that now because based on like our research and our findings from like 2013, 14, 15, 16, where we had a string of mild winters, you couldn't ever get the population above like 39,000. And you right. start to see individual health start to drop when they start to hit that level. Fawn mortality increases. So there's some self-regulation going on there, I think, because they're hitting that cap. And so now mm -hmm. they've adjusted like their objective from 50,000 down to 40,000. Right. That's a big decrease, 20% decrease. But it's going to allow them to quit banging their head against the wall and say, how come we, can, we can't get back up to 50,000 here? Now they can make correct management decisions as far as like harvest. And I think hopefully from this study they're doing in Wyoming, I think they're really groundbreaking in this research. Hopefully like some of these ideas move across Southwest where we get a more accurate thought of like, what are we really looking at? Mule deer numbers. Because right now everyone's just crying wolf and, and maybe it's a true thing, but you know, mule deer numbers are down. We can never hit our objective. Anyway, yep. that's another big tangent, but it's, a, it's mm -hmm. kind of a cool thing to tie in with our experience. Even those of us that spend a lot of time on the mountain, how much of that range are we really seeing? It's like nothing, right? Like mm -hmm. it's right. 2% that. And so many of us want to make these big blanket statements for the health of the herd based on our personal observation. It's so small that it doesn't, it's not really a good indicator of what's happening throughout the range. Some of that stuff, I think, as hunters, from a hunter's perspective, I mean, that's kind of more from a conservation perspective. But from a hunter's perspective, okay, if we have a bad winter, what can we expect? If the if all the feeds dried up here, and I saw a buck here three weeks ago, and now I can't find him, where is he? Well, I found a great buck mm -hmm. in July. He's a migratory deer. Where'd he go? That's an important point, though. I mean, as hunters, from our hunter's perspective, we better care about conservation. I mean, if we want to pass that on to generations, that's that's important stuff to talk about and to think about and care about. And that's what just blows my mind about all this coordinate selling and, you know, you name it, all this crap that's going on over here. It's like, what about these next generations and these decisions that we're making and allowing people to make? Is that healthy for our deer herd and for the future of our deer herd? Because I know that some of the decisions that we've made in our past when we were growing up weren't healthy for the deer so we need to get ahead of it before it's too late so i mean as hunters you have to think like a conservationist because if you don't you're just a selfish hunter well guys I don't, we don't want to take your whole night away even though we already have um, <laughs> it's been great man no it's my favorite subject <laughs> i know we can, i think we could all talk about it for a lot longer and maybe we'll have to do that some other time but before we go sure. is there anything else you guys want, want to touch on i think the biggest thing that i want to say is that we're we're just average joes man we're with an above average mindset we're nobodies we're not some big time hunter guy that's been doing this for years and years and years and years and all this experience and stuff and but the points that we're conveying is just stuff that we've learned and that we've seen and we enjoy watching people be successful so so we're, we're just average joes out here loving what we do and we're not successful because of what we do rather it's because of the passion that we have while we're doing it so i just want to make that a point that if you want to be successful you just got to be passionate in what you do well here's the thing i mean a lot of your celebrity guys aren't the real deal you guys are the real deal like if you call yourself an average joe you got an above average passion right it's what drives you to do what you do like these type of conversations are my favorite and i think like reaching out to people who listen to our podcast like this is the reason we're starting this back up it's been the most requested like by far like i'll just meet somebody wherever getting gas in camera and some guy will come up hey man when you turn your podcast back on I'm like, why is, there's so many out there why is it important to you and they're like you're the guys the only ones that are doing it locally here you know and they're like we like the content because it's 
real. It's real. It's real. It's authentic. So anyway. Well, that's the thing is there's hundreds of dudes out here that are just killers, and there's a lot to learn from. There's a lot to learn from guys like that for sure. No, thank you guys for having us. It's been fun. Yeah. Before we go, I want to give you a plug for your your wild company. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Where people can follow that? I have to say, I read your story of Red. Read it on your blog. That was awesome, dude. Very well written. So if anyone wants a good, one of the best hunting stories I've ever read, get on there to the Wild Company blog um, and read Braxton Hamilton's story about Red. I mean, it was it was really good, my friend. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I kind of like writing um, the story of the magician, Big Al, that we've kind of talked about. Uh, he's actually, I was asked to write a piece in Western Hunter magazine. It's the January, February issue. So if anybody's interested in reading about that, it's, it's in that magazine, the Western Hunter. And then, uh, yeah, we just finally launched our website, uh, thewildcompany.com, W-Y-L-D. Uh, what the wild is is uh, we're an apparel company that's just trying to start a movement of uh, people supporting people and outdoorsmen supporting outdoorsmen and um, we're kind of just so sick of all the negativity and how everything has to be a competition what we really want to strive for is just me celebrating you or you um, that's kind of the movement where we're, we're trying to go for um, we're excited to do it and uh, it's starting to, to lift off so uh, we're on Instagram at wild underscore company and that's with a Y yep. that's with a Y yep. W-Y Okay, sweet. That sounds good. And don't sell yourself short because Braxton did get the cover of Western Hunter. So if you see a giant <laughs> yeah, deer on a magazine with Brax looking off into the sunset, that's the one. <laughs> and not that's everyone right. kills a 220 inch deer with their bow, dude. Yeah. In fact, very you know, few that. people. Hey guys, thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation on Mule Deer with uh, Braxton and Story. Thanks to those guys for getting on with us and having a fun conversation for a few hours. I just wanted to let everybody know, every time we post a new podcast, we also publish a new article on AltitudeOutdoors.com that has a bunch of information about that podcast. So websites, social media profiles, and all those links are there. So if you're listening to this from some other source, jump on over there, check out the website, get on that post, and you can get all the information that we've talked about here where you can check out Braxton and Story, follow them on Instagram, and check out The Wild Company. This was the Hunt the High Country podcast from Altitude Outdoors. (laughs) 